Today's Bible reading is taken from the book of John, chapter 14, verse 1 to 14. It can be found on um, the Pew Bibles, 1,535. John, chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I, after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and, that, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Thanks, Lee Ching. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, thank you that in it there is life, and that life is found in Jesus. So we pray this morning as uh, we hear you speak, we pray that you would show us um, why your son is worthy of our lives. Amen. Uh, well, let me have my welcome to that of Bernie's before. It's great to have you with us here at church. Uh, you'll have noticed, of course, that some things are a little bit different uh, today and will be in the weeks ahead, but some things don't change. And in particular, uh, we come together around God's Word. Um, so I'm going to ask you please to open your Bibles to John chapter 14 on page 1535 to take out the leaflet that you're given as you came in. If you didn't get one, you can pick one up from the door. In the inside, as usual, there's a reasonably detailed outline with some other Bible verses that you want to have in front of you. You'll see that I want to start with a question at the top left of the handout. The question is quite simply, what troubles you? What troubles you? What do you worry about? What are you concerned for? What are you afraid of? John 14 tells the story of the last night of Jesus' life. Uh, it's a Passover meal that ought to be as significant to the Jews as Christmas Day or Lunar New Year, New Year dinner is for us. And so far on this night, he's washed his disciples' feet, 
to model self-sacrificial service. And he's warned them that he's going to be betrayed by Judas and denied by Peter. All of which means that, quite frankly, what should have been a wonderful night has turned out to be a bit of a downer. Thankfully, finally, the mood is going to lift in John chapter 14. A point one there on your handout, Jesus comforts his disciples. Jesus comforts his disciples. And in particular, he gives two reasons why his disciples can take heart despite how troubled they feel. You'll see there on your handout, firstly, because of who Jesus is, verse 1, and then secondly, because of what Jesus promises to do for them, verses 2 through 4. First reason why his disciples can be comforted is because of who he is. You see, Jesus has just rebuked Peter for his brave but misguided declaration of support. That's there in verse 38 of chapter 13, there on your handout. And yet, the very next verse, chapter 14, verse 1, he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Why not? Well, chapter 14, verse 1, You believe in God, believe also in me. You believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus is saying that even though you and I stumble and fall, he can be trusted to deliver. Why? Well, because of who he is. As we've seen, actually, throughout John's Gospel, Jesus and God are equal. Look at John chapter 5, verse 18, printed there on your handout. Jesus was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Jesus and God always speak as one. They always act as one. That means trusting Jesus means trusting in God himself. So the first reason why his disciples can take comfort from him is because of who he is. The second reason, there on your handout, because of what he promises to do for them. Because of what he promises to do for them. I have a look in verse 2. Verse 2 of John 14, Jesus says, My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? Now the picture that Jesus is painting here for his disciples who are troubled in heart... Uh, the picture is of an advance party. You know, the one that goes ahead and bumps in early to get everything set up so that when the rest of us arrive, everything is ready and waiting. And we can just kick back and relax. In case there's any doubt that Jesus will deliver the goods, look at verse 3. Verse 3, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. It's hard to miss his logic, isn't it? Jesus is saying that if he's gone to all this effort to go ahead of them, to prepare a room for them, then of course he is going to come back and collect them. Otherwise, why bother in the first place? What Jesus is saying to his disciples is that no matter what happens next, after he leaves them and Judas betrays him and Peter denies him, and the rest of them abandon him and are scattered like sheep without a shepherd. Nevertheless, their hearts need not be troubled because, come what may, Jesus promises in his father's house they will be reunited with him and by implication with each other. Now, a couple of things to say about this picture that he's painting for them, about his father's house. You can see there on your handout, I want to emphasise two parts to it. Firstly, 
He speaks about my father's house, my father's house. Um, I think that's a profoundly comforting image that Jesus is uh, offering. You see, he's not just referring to God, he's referring to Father. Uh, Actually, we saw that back in John 5, verse 18. That was uh, that earlier verse. In talking about God, not just as God, but as Father, what Jesus is offering is a kind of intimacy and a closeness of relationship with God, like what an infant child has with their parent. That's worth pointing out, this is almost unheard of uh, for the Jews. Uh, The Jews, they did believe in God, but they believed in an all-powerful God, one who is entirely other, unapproachable. The technical theological word is God is transcendent. And even though that God does call Israel his firstborn son, Exodus 4 verse 22, there on your handout, nevertheless, an Old Testament Jew would never dare to call that God, Dad. And so it's in that context that what Jesus is offering in my Father's house is a security and a safeness that only family is entitled to. In fact, that's the image that's been running ever since chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 12, there on your handout, If you've been adopted into God's family, chapter 1, verse 12, Jesus gives the right to become children of God. If you're adopted into the Father's family, you will always be welcome in His place. And actually, if you read the passage that Li Ching read for us before, uh, you might have noticed that the word Father appears 13 times. In just 14 verses, it's kind of hard to miss the point that Jesus is making about family and about belonging. The other thing to say, and it's there on your handout, it's not just my father's house, it's also my father's house. That's the image that he's painting. And this, I think, is equally reassuring. You see, even more than talking about going to be with God in His presence or being in heaven or stepping into eternity. The picture that Jesus is painting here is one of belonging, of a house, in fact, of a home. Now, one of the things I did this week in preparation for this talk was that I thought I'd try and work out what is the biggest home in the world. And so there's a picture on screen behind me. Uh, According to the Guinness Book of Records, the biggest home in the world belongs to the Sultan of Brunei. Uh, It cost nearly one and a half billion US dollars uh, back in 1984. It covers 200,000 square meters, has, wait for it, 257 bathrooms and 1,788 bedrooms. And my point is that it's little more than a shack compared with what Jesus has in store in his father's home. Because there, there are many rooms. In fact, the sense is there is more than enough for everybody. Well, 
After hearing that kind of promise from Jesus, uh, the natural response, I think, is, well, okay, that's great, so where is this place? How do I get there? Which I think is what Jesus anticipates in verse 4. Verse 4 of John 14, Jesus says, you know the way to the place where I am going. And that brings us then to point two in our handout on the right-hand side, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, at this point, Jesus, uh, sorry, at this point, Thomas speaks up with a pretty fair question. Now, a bit of background about Thomas. Uh, all of us, I think, you probably know that um, Thomas is the kind of bloke who tends to be a little bit pessimistic. Uh, we saw back in chapter 11, verse 16, uh, that's what he was like. He also tends a bit towards scepticism. Uh, in fact, as you know, history has perhaps unfairly labelled Thomas as Doubting Thomas. That's right, Doubting Thomas. So here's what he asked Jesus next um, in verse 5, and this is my paraphrase. This is my paraphrase. Thomas basically says, Okay, Jesus, what you're describing, it is so big, we can't get our heads around it. Uh, in fact, it sounds too good to be true. There is no chance we would ever find ourselves in a place like that. To which Jesus gives his famous reply in verse 6. Turn over your pages in your Bible. John 14, verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. What Jesus is saying to his disciples is don't worry about the details. Just follow me and I'll take you there. I am the way. I have the directions, according to Jesus. I am the truth. You can trust me. I'm not lying. I am the life. So nothing can stop me. No obstacle or hindrance. No opposition or disaster. No doubt. Not even death can separate you from my love because Jesus is saying he is the resurrection and the life. John chapter 11. I think this would have been wonderfully reassuring for his, disciple, for his disciples with their troubled hearts. Deeply reassuring. And yet, as well as comforting them, Jesus also adds something extremely confronting. Look how verse 6 goes on. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is saying that in order for their hearts to not be troubled, they need to know he's not just one of many ways. He is the only way to God the Father. Let me just pause for a moment and say that I realise just how arrogant that sounds of Jesus, how offensive that might feel. Can I say, it was just as hard to hear back then as it is today. Uh, throughout John, actually, Jesus has been explicitly repudiating the Old Covenant because the Old Covenant was good in principle, but ineffective in practice. Take, for example, John 5, verse 39, printed there on your handout. John 5, verse 39, Jesus is talking to the Jewish leaders. He says to them, you study the Scriptures, that is the Old Testament, you study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. 
Jesus is less taking potshots at other religions and he is more reassuring his disciples that, yes, they can trust him. What's they going to need to do? They're going to need to be 100% certain that he is the way, the only way, that there's no plan B, if they'll be willing to go all in with him. And so actually, look at what he says next in verse 7. Verse 7, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is saying that to know Jesus means to know God the Father himself. After all, back in John chapter 1, verse 18, there on your handout, we were told that if you see Jesus, you've seen the very essence of God the Father himself. Well, at this point in verse 8, it's Philip's turn to speak up. Philip says, look at verse 8, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Now, apparently, it turns out that Philip is as full of doubt as Thomas, although he doesn't get the label from history. I think what John is doing is reminding us that all of us, all of them were afraid, as you and I would have been if we'd been there too. But Jesus' response is exactly the same to Thomas, uh, to Philip as it was to Thomas. Verse 9, verse 9, Jesus answered, Don't you know me? Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father, and that the Father is in me? Once again, Jesus is assuring his disciples the reason they can trust him is because of who he is. He is God. He is in the Father. The Father is in him. And so, Jesus speaks with the Father's authority. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, don't you believe that I'm in the Father, that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, do not, I do not speak on my own authority, rather it's the Father living in me who's doing his work. Jesus speaks with the Father's authority and actually he acts on the Father's authority. Look at verse 11. Believe me when I say that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. And so then, to Jesus' final reassurance to his disciples with their troubled hearts to close out this passage. Look at me, verses 12 and 14, 12 through 14. Verses 12 through 14. Very truly I tell you, Whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Well, a couple of questions I think get raised by these last few verses and I've printed them there for you on your handout. Let me talk about each of them for a moment. Firstly, what are the greater things which Jesus says his disciples will do what are the greater things which Jesus says his disciples will do? Because that sounds intriguing, doesn't it? Well, the start, starting point, I think, to working out what are the greater things that the disciples will do is to clarify what are the works that Jesus has been doing all along. Because when you think about it, so far in John's Gospel, we've seen Jesus do some pretty spectacular things. He's turned water into wine. He's fed the 5,000. He healed a man born blind. He even raised Lazarus from the dead. 
Is Jesus saying to us, when he says you will do greater things than these, that we should expect that we will do those things and in fact even top Jesus? Well, obviously, when I put it that way, you can tell that maybe there's a bit more going on here. Here's the answer, I think. Remember how John has described what Jesus' mission was all along? He actually talked about it in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. It's there on your handout. This is actually the conclusion to his whole book. John 20, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is saying that Jesus' work was to do more than just miracles. His work was to offer eternal life. Or in the language of John 14, Jesus' work was to bring people into his Father's house that has many rooms. And so I think that when Jesus says to his disciples, you will do the works I've been doing, he's actually giving us the extraordinary privilege of leading others to eternal life. If that's the case then, what does it mean for you and I to not just do what Jesus was doing, but to do even greater things, even greater than than that? Well, there's a few possibilities. One is that when Jesus says that we will do greater things than him, it might be referring to the magnitude and number of people who become believers. I mean, if you think about it, in three years, Jesus only gathered a handful of disciples. But in the centuries since, there have been quite literally billions of new disciples made. Maybe that's the greater thing uh, that Jesus is promising. It's possible that the greater thing is referring to people who become believers by faith after Jesus is gone, as opposed to people who become believers by sight whilst he was still here on earth. Because I think actually in our sceptical times, becoming a believer by faith is even more remarkable. But Actually, I think what the greater things are that Jesus is describing is the difference between the disciples being able to declare with hindsight all that Jesus is only foreshadowing in John chapter 14. That is, Jesus' death and his resurrection and all the benefits that flow from that, it still hasn't taken place. Uh, It's the difference, I think, between anticipation and realisation, between promise and fulfilment. It's the remarkable thing that you and I get to do today. We get to preach in totality what those before Christ could only ever dream of. We get to preach the full atonement for sin, victory over Satan, and the defeat even of death itself. The greater thing I think that we get to do is the glory of sharing the entire story, not just a teaser trailer or a preview. We get to retell the whole saga from start to finish, not just the first episode in a series that's going to run for multiple seasons. Well, can you see the magnificence of what Jesus is promising his disciples? The greater thing that they will get to do 
to lead others to eternal life in his name. Can you see how there is nothing better for us to do? Nothing better than to do the works that Jesus has been doing. Nothing better than to proclaim he is the way, the truth and the life. There is nothing better that we might aspire to with our lives than to hand out directions to the Father's house where Jesus has gone ahead of us to prepare a room for us. Nothing else we accomplish in this world, no matter how good, can ever prepare us for that, can can ever compare to that. And so the other question then, at the bottom of your page, what can I ask Jesus for in his name? I look at verses 13 and 14. Jesus says, I'll do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. So what can we ask Jesus for in his name? Uh, Once again, I can see from the smiles on your faces that you realise there's a bit of a trick question going on here. In John's Gospel, actually, the phrase that the Father may be glorified in the Son is just another way of describing Jesus' mission. His mission, that by believing in His name, people might have eternal life. Jesus is not inviting us to bring him a wish list of all our personal desires so that he can grant them. He's not like Santa Claus. To be really crass, do you think that Jesus was betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter, abandoned by God on the cross, just so you could help him, you could ask him to help you pass your exams or pay off your mortgage? Don't get me wrong, those are good things to ask our Heavenly Father and He's generous. So by all means, ask Him. But what Jesus is saying in John 14 is to ask in His name that the Father may be glorified in the Son and that's a prayer that Jesus longs to answer. Which I think is a pretty big challenge for us. After all, how often did you pray that prayer in this week gone by? Well, what does it all mean for us? Let me offer a few things as we wrap up. The first is, at a very practical level, there's a slide on screen, uh, I want to invite you to join us uh, at the Word one-to-one training that Bernie spoke about before. This is being put on so that you might be better equipped to introduce people to Jesus through his life-giving word in reading John's Gospel. Seems to me that that'd be a great skill for all of us to have. Second thing is that if the prayer that Jesus wants us to pray is, Father, may you be glorified in your Son, and if we pray that prayer today and tomorrow and every day, what do you think we should expect to see? What do you think we should expect to see? If we pray that prayer, Father, be glorified through your Son. I want to say today that that's our heartfelt desire for our two all-age AM gatherings, that God the Father would be glorified through His Son. I want to take a moment just to thank you for your willingness 
to embrace change for the sake of others. And I thank you for your patience and grace, particularly in the weeks ahead as we try and adjust to what will be our new normal. Can I remind you that the only reason we're doing this is so that more people across the generations might come to the Father's house through His Son, Jesus? Because that will glorify God. I want to say that I, for one, can't wait to see how Jesus is going to answer that prayer in the years ahead. Uh, In fact, uh, Commitment Sunday is coming up in May. Uh, If you just, yeah, thank you. Uh, Commitment Sunday is coming up in May. Um, Already, for your great encouragement, we have someone, people from each of our four gatherings, including Mandarin, preparing to participate on that day to be baptised to show that actually they have, of the, to speak of their faith in Jesus and to glorify the Father through the Son. In fact, if you just go back one slide, thanks, um, there's a picture here of Mark and on the left and Sarong, she's the lady on the right. Uh, at the moment, in the Mandarin gathering, Mark and Sarong are both being baptised and the Mandarin gathering chose today to baptise them as a display of solidarity with us as we start on this new venture, because this is our prayer, that the Father would be glorified through the Son for years to come. Well, back to my opening question from verse 1. Are your hearts troubled? The thing is, in John 14, there's no mention of exactly when Jesus is coming back to take us to his Father's house. Just the assurance that he will, and that that ought to give us enough confidence to trust him in the meantime. So I thought I'd finish with the story of another member of our church. There's a picture on screen behind me. This is Ruth Chapman from our 9am gathering. Uh, She died on Friday, 10 days ago, and her funeral will be this Tuesday here at 1.30. In the middle of last year, as we were preparing this move towards two all-AJM gatherings, at the ripe old age of 71, and despite having end-stage cancer, she signed up to join the kids' ministry because we needed more helpers. Incredibly, Ruth asked to be given the year five, six boys. That's guts. (laughs) Because being sure that she would eventually go home to her father's house meant she didn't want to waste a minute. I remember talking with her about why she was doing it. She said, Jeff... This is the most important thing I can do with the little time I have left. I know how sad she was to leave, but neither was she afraid or troubled because she's safe with Jesus. I could finish, of course, by asking, well, who's next in line to step into the breach? I will say... If you don't have that kind of assurance, that kind of certainty, please talk with the friend who brought you or come and speak with me afterwards. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us in the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he is the way, the truth and the life. Thank you that because of him, we may glorify your name. So we pray in this week, these months and these years ahead. Please work in and through us 
to bring eternal life to many in the name of Christ. Amen.